The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13 together. Just want to let you know, if for some reason you don't have a Bible, we have those for free. Uh, we want to give you one if you want one. So again, talk to someone after service with a Here to Help badge, or someone in the lounge will get you a Bible. That's our gift to you. If you don't have a way to follow along today, uh, we will have the scriptures up on the screen so everyone can study together with us. Uh, we are continuing in our series. It's called Refined. And this series is a verse-by-verse expository study of the book of 1 Peter. So today, uh, we're going to examine the second half of the second chapter. I just want to give you guys a heads up. There are some difficult passages and principles to grapple with here in these few verses. Um, And so my call to us today, it's, it's really the same as every time we approach the scriptures, but maybe especially today, is we must be humble, first of all, Uh, And we need to expect to encounter things at times that are difficult to understand as we study God's word, and even things that we don't agree with. Uh, Sometimes our disagreement is the result of a lack of understanding. Uh, With faithful explanation, sometimes those tensions can be resolved. Sometimes, however, our disagreement is the result of a sinful position, opinion, or attitude on our part. And so when that's the case, we need to give those to God in prayer, uh, asking him to help us submit to his thoughts and ways, uh, because we know those are far higher and better than our own. So uh, that's, my, my, I guess, my big ask of you today, just in light of the material, the scriptures that we're covering, is to stay engaged. Uh, as we wrestle through these things, it's important that we kind of stay together with our hearts and minds focused on what it is the Lord Jesus really wants to teach us. Uh, by way of example, I was just thinking, you know, my son Max is four, and uh, he really likes to wrestle with dad. And the truth is, I'm bigger, and I'm stronger, and I always win, but he still enjoys it. He's still the one always asking for it. So uh, I kind of see us like that today. We may wrestle with God a little bit today through these scriptures. He's going to win. Just settle that now. Uh, but we can still enjoy it. We can still have fun studying this together uh, and actually rejoice in whatever change may come for us. So I just say, may the same be true for us today. All right, let's read 1 Peter. Uh, We're in chapter 2, starting verse 13. Here we go. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You guys stoked up yet? I told you. (laughs) All right, here we go. Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Praise God for his word. Let's go back to uh, verse 13. We're going to take 13 through 15 together. And, and the way I'm going to approach the difficult dynamics maybe of this is first in, in each place I'm going to tell you what it is not saying first of all and then I'm going to tell you what it is saying because I think a lot of the difficulty comes out of misapplications, misunderstandings of what people think it's saying. So we'll start with what it's not saying and then we'll move on from there. So first 13 through 15, right? So it says, it says submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether that's a king or someone in authority, governors, um, and because, you know, he sends them for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is not, so what is not saying? This is not a call for every Christian to go along with everything any human authority says, no matter how evil. Now, I understand just looking at that, if that's the only verse you looked at, and maybe if you were an evil dictator and wanted that to be true, you could get that. But that's not what it's saying. This verse is a really great example of why we can't cherry-pick a few verses and not view them through the lens of what the rest of the Bible teaches. Um, I'm going to give you some reasons that universal submission to government or religious authority, no matter what, cannot be what Peter's teaching here. Okay, I'll give you a few things. First reason. This, it's important to understand who he's writing to. His audience will help us understand why he says this the way he says it. Peter is speaking to both converted Jews and Gentiles. There were in that time many zealous Jews who were living and teaching that they should only submit to God and that no human authorities were legitimate at all. Uh, I gotta say, if I didn't have the scriptures, I could probably get sucked into that mindset, right? Like that one sounds good to me. Yeah, bump everybody else, I'm just gonna listen to God. Uh, and I've, I've heard people say that before, so, you know, that hasn't gone away. Um, so people were teaching that. Peter's instructions have to be seen as an answer to this extreme, okay? So his comments make more sense if you understand what he's dealing with. He is not here giving a full and comprehensive set of instructions for every situation on how to relate to authorities. He's, he's speaking to a situation uh, specifically, and not that the principles don't apply more broadly, they do, and we're going to talk about that, but uh, that part of seeing his answer correctly in the scope for which it was intended you have to understand the, the, other, the extreme that he's coming against, which is uh, people saying, God's the king, that means any under authority under that means nothing, which of course is silliness. Um, he, says, he says, for the Lord's sake, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Why does he say that? Not as if the Lord has need of something. Uh, that's not the point, but the, the truth is the this, this group, the like only God can judge me group, committed to anarchy, uh, they were making Christians and Jesus in this time look bad uh, because of the way they were conducting themselves, what they were teaching. It, it is likely that this, Peter wrote this 
during the reign of Nero. If you know anything about him, he was using Christians as torches and persecution. He was already viciously persecuting Christians. And the reality is a lot of that persecution probably had to do with the actions and positions of these extreme groups. So think about Peter, who's writing this letter broadly, right? Remember, you go back to 1 Peter 1, who's he writing to? He says, who, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout, and then he names a bunch of places, right? So this is a broad letter to go to a bunch of different Christians, and so he's addressing this problem. People are getting pulled into this ideology that no human government has any credibility, and uh, we should all pretty much be anarchists, and God's the only king. Uh, and this is not only is that not what the Bible teaches, that's not what God has said, so that's problematic, but it's also probably fueling the fires of persecution, meaning more and more Christians, maybe ones that aren't even a part of this anarchy group, are suffering persecution, being set on fire for it and whatnot. And you might be sitting there thinking, hold on a second, are you telling me there was people running around saying that they were speaking for God, but actually probably didn't even know him, and what they were saying was not what God said? And I would answer to you, some things never change. Because that's still going on today. Oh, zinger. Those of you that got it, great. Those of you that just stared at me blankly, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, yeah, that still happens. There's still people running around today saying, hey, I'm, I, I'm speaking for God. This is what you should do or not do. And they got no idea. And it makes Jesus look bad. It makes the rest of us who are actually following what Jesus said look bad. Uh, and that's part of what Peter's dealing with here. If you're, if you're doing that, you're not thinking about what's good for Jesus and his people. That's his point. Okay. Uh, the foolish men in verse 15 that he refers to, he's referring to the extremists uh, that were, you know, kind of proposing this ideology uh, and those who, because of them, were accusing all Christians of being rebels who refused to submit to anyone but God. So he's saying, if you don't do that, if you don't jump onto this train, what you're going to do by actually, you know, submitting to the governments that God, the human governments that, that, that God puts in place, um, by not being somebody that thinks you're above the law, by doing this, by participating in the civil life and, and the governmental structures of the place and time that God has put you, by doing that, you will silence the foolishness, you will silence the mouths of foolish men, both who teach this and then those who hear somebody say, I'm a Christian, and that means you should never do anything uh, to submit to human governments. And, and so then that person comes to believe, okay, well, that's what all Christians think. Have you ever, as a follower of Christ, had somebody say something to you, well, you Christians do this, or you Christians believe this, and you're like, not me. <laughs> like not, not out of some like air of superiority, but seriously, man, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of mud that gets slung on God's people, and that was happening here. And, and you know, today what you suffer is probably the potential for rejection or maybe social scorn. These people, the stakes were, uh, Nero was burning them, man. And so this was a serious thing Peter was dealing with. And that's why it, it seems like he kind of leans heavy to the side of what he says, right? Just submit to the government. He doesn't give a bunch of qualifications or whatever. He's, he's speaking to an extremity, and so that's to some degree why his answer seems on the other side. But we have to understand the context. We have to understand also Peter's not going to teach something that isn't in harmony with the rest of the scriptures. Okay, so his audience is the first reason I would give you that he's not teaching universal compliance with every governmental edict, no matter how evil. Here's the second reason I will give you. Biblical precedence. And I'm going to start with our boy Peter. Peter himself responds to the Sadducees and other religious leaders of his day this way in Acts 4, verses 18 through 20. 
Uh, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because I'm a little bit sassy, probably, by nature. Verse 18. This is Peter responding to the Sadducees. And when they, the Sadducees, had summoned them, they commanded them, they were speaking to Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How did they respond? But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Does that sound like universal compliance to what this governing supposed religious authority said? They, they said, you're not going to talk about Jesus anymore. They said, in so many words, yes, we are. <laughs> Take it up with God. And, uh, you know, what, what could they do at that point? So, first of all, I, I think that's pretty strong. I probably could have stopped there. Peter himself, obviously, biblical precedent shows he's not teaching universal submission to everyone that says, hey, I'm an authority. Do what I say. Okay? I'll give you some more. Uh, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel refuses to obey the command of the king to stop praying to the one true God. Uh, you know how that story goes. Uh, he ends up getting thrown in the lion's den. God preserves him. He gets, ends up brought out. Everyone that tried to set him up gets thrown in. They get eaten. He didn't. Uh, God clearly blesses and protects Daniel. His defiance to a governmental structure, God obviously was okay with in that setting. I'm going to, I'll make that more plain in a second. I'll give you one more. Genesis 39, Joseph is a servant in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a high-ranking Egyptian official. Potiphar's wife, who is also in authority over Daniel, comes in dressed like Britney Spears in 2003 and tries to get Daniel to do the no-pants dance with her. And here's my question to you. Sorry, Joseph. This is Joseph in this situation. So here she rolls in says everything she says, what does Joseph do? I mean, she's obviously an authority over him. Does he go for it? No, he jukes her like Barry Sanders in his prime and rolls. I mean, comes up out his shirt and goes. And uh, so obviously, again, and you, you know, if you know Joseph's story, uh, that act of obedience to God, even when a governmental or authority figure was telling him you should do this, uh, led to blessing. So uh, overall, I, the starting premise was, I'm going to tell you what, what these couple of verses are not saying. 15 and 16 are not saying we, as Christians, universally submit to authority structures, uh, even if what they're trying to do is, or cause us to do is evil. What are they saying? What are, what are these verses saying, Ben? The scriptures are, are harmonious when it comes to this principle. As followers of Jesus, we are to submit to earthly authorities up to and until they try to force us to disobey God. If Jesus wanted to start an anarchist revolution, he definitely could have. In fact, that's what everyone around him wanted him to do. They thought he was there to overthrow the government. That's what they kept looking for. That's why he had to duck out half the time because everyone was about to throw him on their shoulders and say, hail, hail the king, because they thought that's what he was going to do. Obviously, that wasn't what he came to do, because uh, instead of starting an anarchist revolution, when he's questioned about taxes, he paid his and then told everyone, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So the overall point there is these verses are teaching the same thing the rest of the Bible, Bible teaches as it pertains to this. That being, followers of Jesus submit to earthly authorities 
up to and until they try to force us to disobey God. At that point, we cannot go with them any farther. And some of the stories I told you have instant uh, positive outcomes. Some don't, right? Joseph jukes Potiphar's wife. What happens? She lies on him. He goes and spends some time in jail over it. And so sometimes obeying God in this way doesn't lead to, uh, you know, a parade for you. Um, sometimes it leads to some pain and discomfort. However, uh, it's still the right move. Praise the Lord. May we have the strength to do it if put in that position. Verse 16, we'll kind of take in and of itself here. It says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. We are free in Jesus. I left a really big space there for you to say amen. We are free in Jesus. Does that matter to you? It should matter to you. That's a profound statement with deep and wide implications. We are free in Christ. That is beautiful, and we could talk about it all night. However, the tendency is to misapply this truth, and that tendency for us to misapply the truth of our freedom is addressed here. Many people hear they are free in Jesus, and they think that means they're free to do what they want to do. Jesus has set us free to do what we were made to do, which is love and joy and obey God. So-called Christian liberties must always be viewed through the lens of our supreme command to love God and love people. In this context, in the flow of thought here, that means that even though we are children of the king of all creation, which is also a beautiful truth, we are the children of the king of all creation, we don't live like spoiled and entitled royal brats among the people that we live around. Instead of doing that, we work within the authority structures and the time and place he's called us to live. By doing this, we are reflecting the good and loving nature of our king, which is an act of love to him and others. Every single time, by the grace and the power of God, by the working of his Holy Spirit, we use our liberty to reflect God's goodness instead of using our liberty uh, to serve our own selfish desires. What that does is it reflects the goodness of God uh, to people. When we do what we're being commanded to do here, when we figure out, though it may be difficult, how to work within, sometimes even participate in the civil, social, uh, governmental structures of the place and time that God has put us, when we do those things, when, when we're a part of that, we have an opportunity to reflect the goodness of God. We have the freedom to do that. And when we do that, that's loving to God uh, because it's obedient to Him. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You ought to put that one on your fridge. Instead of Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, okay, all right. It's going to be one of those nights. All right, it's fine. It's good. I'm all right. Let's do it. Uh, Joseph's example is also helpful here as well. Um, not only did he refuse to sin against God because a human authority sanctioned it, but God vindicated him and he ended up serving in that same government. Remember, uh, Joseph jukes Potiphar's wife, goes to jail, ends up interpreting some dreams there. Then, uh, long story short, he ends up in front of Pharaoh, interprets a dream for him, ends up being second in command of Egypt, only Pharaoh's above him. And so there he is, right? So he, he decides to obey God instead of obeying this authority, 
But then God puts him in a place of authority higher than that authority and does it for the specific purpose of saving many lives from a famine. But also, all of that, and this should be encouraging to us, is a part of God's overall redemptive purpose. Because if Joseph had not been placed as second command in Egypt, his family never could have came because of the famine. They never would have been saved. They never would have ended up in Egypt. They never would have been there 400 years. They never would have been taken out in an exodus by Moses. They never would have wandered around for 40 years. They wouldn't have made it to the promised land. There wouldn't have been judges, kings, prophets, David, and then Jesus. You understand what I'm talking about? It mattered that Joseph kept his integrity in that chamber with Potiphar's wife. All of the redemptive plan of God was affected in that moment. And you might say, well, I'm not as important as Joseph. I don't think Joseph knew (laughs) what his obedience meant or didn't mean in that moment. I think by the power of God and because of conviction, he didn't lay with that woman who threw herself at him, uh, and it mattered deeply. And he ended up serving then in in that same government. Um, And so uh, that should help us kind of square all of these ideas if, if we think about Joseph's story. Uh, verse 17 gives us further clarification. We're still talking about what this does say. I, I gave you uh, a fairly concise overview of what it's not saying so that we don't get stuck in those ditches. Verse 17 gives us further understanding of what actually is being said here. So it says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Peter's still talking about the same thing here, the same flow of thought. He's still kind of forming this command and idea that he's giving us. So, first of all, it's important here to understand, you know, we don't submit and honor, we might use those words interchangeably, we don't use the word honor a whole lot, and it's, it's a fine word to be put here uh, to kind of communicate what's being said, but it, this is one of those times where the Greek is helpful. So, the word honor here does not mean mindless submission. And, and I probably would have interpreted it that way at, at different times, right? I would have thought, okay, if he says honor the king here, that means whatever the king says, I do it. This word honor is, is the Greek tameo, and it's like the same root word as time. And I'm not really sure why, because the Greek word tameo, it means like to give value to. Um, it's like when you price something, like if you do a yard sale and you're like, hmm, this figurine should be 35 cents, right? Like you determine a value, you give it a value. Uh, That's, the the Greek actually has nothing to do with the yard sale. That was just a better example I was trying to give you of what it meant to price or value something. Um, Based on your reaction, it didn't work. You understand what I'm saying. It means to give value to something. This honor here is to give value to. And so that kind of changes, if you read this again then, understanding that, give value to all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God honor the king. Okay, so give value to the king. We should see all people as valuable because they are made in God's image. That's a first bottom line Christian premise that honestly I don't think we fully understand how much modern culture has been affected by the Christian thought that because every human is made in God's image, we have intrinsic value. There's a lot of people that use that argument and don't even know they're using it. There's a lot of people that ascribe value to humanity and they have no basis for it because they don't believe in a God that made us and or gave us that value. They don't really have a backing for why we're valuable, uh, but we do. We're made in God's image, and so we should value every human. We should honor everybody. That's what he says here. Honor all people. See them as valuable. Peter instructs us specifically here to love the brotherhood of believers. And the word here is agape, so he's telling us love with the sacrificial kind of love that Jesus displayed for us 
on the cross. We need to love the brotherhood that way. That again ties to mission. Um, John 13, we are told that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples by our love one for the other. Unfortunately, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus today, are often described with many other words than love for one another. But part of the mission and existence of this church is to fight back against that right there. We want the love of God amongst us and amongst the people of God to be our defining characteristic. We believe that is going to speak uh, very loudly to the character of our God and to the truth of his gospel. So he says to love the brotherhood of believers. It's not only for the sake of the outside to see our love, it's also for the benefit of us that are in here, right? It's awesome that the people of God love each other uh, by the power of God, that we don't just have uh, some type of common interest that causes us to gather together once a week and be in each other's space. Like, there is, there is a bond between us that has been uh, created by the fact that we each have been purchased, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And, and so in that, we understand that we, we were all dead in sin together, and we have now been made alive in Christ together, and there is a bond that comes in being on a mission together. I mean, have you ever... Have you ever listened to the way guys in the military talk about each other? Guys that have served right next to each other in the trenches, right? There is a bond there that, uh, you know, uh, you'll see it in, with firemen and police. There's this brotherhood talk. It's always there. This, like we have a fraternal order. We're connected. We have this common experience. You'll see that in the military. You'll see that fire uh, and firemen and police. And, and honestly, so, I, I don't think in, in many churches... Uh, that's what that same kind of brotherhood, that same kind of love, that same kind of commitment to one another is something that tends to define us. And so I started thinking about that. Why is that? Because it seems like we're supposed to. Um, actually, our connection, our common experience, our mission, I, I, don't, I, I don't mean to denigrate anything the military does here. I am thankful for every single person that sacrifices what they sacrifice to serve. I just need, I can say this though with great confidence. The mission we've been given as God's people is of immeasurably higher importance than the mission the military has been given. Is it okay to say that? I hope it's okay to say that. And, and anybody that's got military in your family or your military or ex-military, please don't be offended by that. But if, if you're a gospel person and you understand that, yes, our military uh, protects our borders and, and goes after evil in the world, they have a very, very, very important mission. The people of God are commissioned with taking the light of the world into the darkness and to storm against the gates of hell and for them not to prevail and to, to tell the most important story that's ever been told uh, to a bunch of people that if they don't get it, will die and be separated from God for eternity. And so the, the, there, there's not a measuring stick to measure the importance difference between the two of those. However, the military can have the bond that they have. Why don't we see that in Christians? And I think simply, oftentimes, it's that the people of God are not as engaged in mission as they should be. We would have that kind of collective camaraderie. We would have that same type of fraternal sense of brotherhood, connection, and commitment to one another if we were spent more time in the trenches on mission together. You can say amen about that. You can write a note. You can say, oh, me. Any of that is appropriate, uh, but it's true. That's part of our problem. So we need to see all people as valuable. We need to love the brotherhood of believers the way Jesus has loved us. Um, and, and he makes this distinction here. We're not only to give value to God. He doesn't say honor God, does he? He says fear God. So we are not only to give value to God, but to reverently fear him because he is perfect and holy and far above every human form of leadership. 
Um, we are also to, to see kings or rulers as valuable. So why we honor people, love the brothers, fear God, and honor the king, God deserves a higher level of reverence and fear. Again, we've talked about this. I, I always, when I talk about the fear of God, I always put that word reverence in there because it's, it's contained. This is the, not the same kind of fear that is being caused by people tying red balloons to sewer grates, okay? This is not what God is talking about because the whole rest of the Bible tells uh, us over and over again to fear not, right? But there is a fear of the Lord. There is a holy reverence. There is a respect that comes in just contemplating the fact that this is the, the sovereign. This is the creator. This is the king above every king. And if, if you are so brazen or foolish as to think you're going to stroll into the presence of that kind of magnificence, just with kind of some kind of swagger on you or whatever, you're a fool. You will you will revere him, whether you know him, love him, or not. When you come into that presence, the Bible's very clear. The reaction will be universal. Your knee's going to bow. However, our great hope as people that love God and love others is that we will have a hand in being a part of participating in as many people as possible bowing their knee on that day out of joyful reverence as opposed to terrifying fear. Thank God. Thank God that he's entrusted us to be a part of that incredible mission. The last thing he's saying here is he uses the same word for honor all people as he does for to say honor kings. So we are also to see kings or rulers as valuable. So what is he saying there? I think we're supposed to see the office and the person as valuable. So what, is some practical, what are the practicalities of that? What is, what is Peter telling us? We need to be careful how we talk about those in positions of government. We really do. That, that many, God uses them to restrain the sinful tendencies of all mankind. He says that here, right? To governors that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. If, you're, if you really think, if we just abolished all government, let's just play make-believe with me for a minute. Let's just say we could. Say someone gave you a, a magic wand and let you wave it, and you're precious wish was that all government goes away, all structures go away, all human institutions go away, and we just, uh, actually it happened in this last election, there was a bunch of memes, I hate referencing memes while I'm preaching, a meme just sounds like such a word that just shouldn't exist, but it, I'm like giving credence to it, but okay, there was a meme going around saying, why don't we just skip the election this year and we'll all pretend to be super cool, or we'll all promise to be super cool, that was, that was, that was the thing. If you think abolishing all human, all the police, all the, all the fire trucks, everything just gets decommissioned, there's no government, no city government, state government, uh, no federal government in any country anywhere, if you think what you have in the next hour is a human utopia, you're, <laughs> I know this is going to be the second time like I have just straight called you a fool this sermon, but I just have to do it again. If that's what you think, you're a fool. You know nothing about human nature, and you live in a bubble called Candyland. That's not what would happen. It would be utter chaos. The, the, the deep-seated evil in the hearts of people would, would just flourish like a black rose, and it would be on. That's what would happen. God uses human governments and institutions as a part of how his common grace approach to restraining the evil we, are, we have the potential for as fallen humans. Uh, we're jacked up. Government officials are not God, 
And so they are often inconsistent and even hypocritical. But this does not give us license to treat or speak of them as if they have no value. We are to value both the office and the person. And so what's the practicality there? You need to think a minute before you post that post. Wherever you land on the political spectrum, man, you need to chill out a second. You also need to chill out a second when it comes to well-known religious leaders. Peter said, you got to honor them. And what he's saying there is you need to see them at least with the value of the Imago Dei, the image of God that is on them. And, and you got to be careful how you speak about that because God has put his image in every human. And so you need to have some reverence there. We should, that doesn't mean there's never a place for constructive criticism. That would be an overcorrection to what I'm saying. However, when you speak of people or the office uh, of authority as if it has no value um, and, and, and you're just kind of needlessly hateful and mean, it doesn't honor the spirit of what's being taught here and it does not reflect good on your master if he is indeed Jesus. Is that all right? Everyone come that far? I asked you to hang with me today because we're going we're gonna to have to cut through some tall cotton, okay? Have you hung in so far? Are you there? Okay. We're not done. We, we have to apply this type of thinking to leaders in the church as well. I kind of already alluded to that, but leaders and especially those who teach the word are to be rightly held to a higher standard of behavior and obedience to God. Absolutely. Scriptures teach that more than one place. But when we hold them to an impossible standard of perfection, we end up disappointed, and almost invariably this leads to a sinful dishonor and distrust of authority. The reality is there's a whole lot of people that are just jaded with authority in general, and so that's why I knew there would be some bristling at these verses, right? <laughs> Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's enough to get a lot of people to check out on you. I'm thankful that you haven't, but, but sometimes we do that to ourselves. Sometimes we put humans on too high of pedestals, and then when they can't support that totally unfair position you stuck them in in your heart and mind, uh, then you're mad at them. We do this with spouses. We do this with governmental leaders. We do it with Christian leaders. Can't do it. This doesn't mean we give people a pass. This doesn't mean we don't call out sin. This doesn't mean we don't say the truth in love. But we need to be mindful of how we approach these things. Uh, one sign of a leader that can be trusted, and I'm on a, this, is, this spans the spectrum of everything I just talked about, from governmental to religious leaders, a sign of a leader that can be trusted is one that is quick to repent when they mess up. Look for that. Now, I'm going to say this to you, though. I, I stand by that statement, but many times leaders feel pressure to hide and justify their struggles or mistakes, because the people they're supposed to be leading don't value grace and repentance in the leader's life. See, a lot of people don't see repent, quick repentance and a willingness to own up to mistakes. They don't see that as the value of a good leader. See, because so many people are trying to create little Jesuses in their mind. Everyone wants a little Jesus in between them, right? That was, that wasn't, that, wasn't that the people's problem at the bottom of Mount Sinai? Like, we need a God. Make us a gold calf, right? Or go on a little bit farther. Oh, everyone else has a king. We need a king. God, give us a king. You, you need to know this about yourself. You are absolutely prone to put something in between you and God, some visual representation, something, whether it be a person or, a, or, or whatever it is, 
some idol, man, we are, we are all prone to that. And it'll be something we'll fight until Jesus comes and relieves us completely of these sinful tendencies by bringing us home. All of us do it. Uh, but sometimes people sabotage the ability of someone that could be a good leader because they put these expectations on them. And if they do, if they do show this, this really good characteristic of being humble and, and repentant, if they make a mistake, when people uh, don't respond to that with grace, sometimes that leader will shut down and just not do that again. And then and they end up trying to pretend like they're perfect. I've, been, I've seen this before. I, I've been a part of organizations where the leader felt like they had to continually like just tell stories about how great they were and never let anybody see that they were having anything other than an excellent day in Jesus. Because if anything other than that was true, right? If that leader was ever struggling whatsoever with anything, well, you're not, you're not like Jesus. How, how am I supposed to submit to this person? How am I supposed to follow this person? Listen, man, uh, it, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you don't see, if, if a leader's not willing to, does everyone make mistakes? I'm, listen, I'm, I'm thinking on the fly, so just there's a little stutter there. It's okay. You'll, you'll be all right. You're not amening when it's polished anyway, so I'm just going to stutter through. Um, does, does everyone make mistakes? Answer me verbally. Okay, so if you have a leader that never, ever is apologizing for a mistake or never lets you see that they made, made a mistake, what's happening there? Is that the truth? No. Okay, did I make my point? Don't make it hard for leaders to actually follow Jesus and, and be honest and tell the truth, right? And that pressure is there a lot. And uh, it doesn't just hurt the leader. It does hurt the leader, but it also hurts the people that they're supposed to lead. Uh, no discussion of this is complete without bringing up everyone's favorite bad guy. So we'll go ahead and do it, right? Because some of you are like, well, what about Hitler, right? Everyone's, that's, that's always the thing. You read, you read uh, 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the, Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, what about Hitler? He's got to come up. So, okay, let's do it. Uh, Roman, and, and honestly, it's okay. Like, let's, let's address it. I think it probably is good here because this is not the only verse like this. Paul weighs in also with even, he goes harder than Peter, right? Because in Romans 13, he says, there is no authority except from God. You ever struggle with that verse? Like, ooh, I'm going to turn the page on that one because... I don't know how to reconcile that with world history and or everyone I even know personally, right? So, uh, but, but that's verbatim. Paul says there's no authority except from God. So what do we do with that? Because you got Hitler's, you got Pol Pot's, you got Stalin's, you got, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> pick your current example. Uh, here's, here, so what do we do with that? Yes, Paul said there's no authority except from God. Yes, Peter said submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay? We can make this complicated, or we can take the same principle that we know all of the scriptures harmoniously gives us and apply it. We submit to authorities up and until they try to force us to disobey God. That's the way you deal with a Hitler. That's the way you deal with somebody. Now, and it, but then your, your mind's still spinning. But how, it, okay, the guy had authority, but only all authority, no authority rises up except from God. So I, I see your wheels turning. Here's another thing we need to remember. Sometimes God allows a bad leader to rise up to remind us not to make our human leaders into little gods that we worship and put our hope in. Do you track with me? That's important because Hitler's a big problem for Christians sometimes, and I don't know why. 
well, if God establishes all authority, then Hitler, right? Like, that's, like they, they got you. No, no, they didn't. Like, world history is really complicated, and God's doing a lot of different things. But there are evil men that have risen up, and sometimes what's happening there um, is that God allows bad leaders to rise up simply so that we don't get back into that place that we're so prone to get uh, of worshiping humans and trying to put them in the place of Jesus. But the other thing you also have to remember is God also raised up leaders of other countries and used them to exact justice on old Adolf. Right? So sometimes, like with Pharaoh, God will let an evil leader rise up just so he can smack them down. So everybody sees, I'm still God. That guy wasn't. I know he acted like it, he talked like it, thought he was, but he's not. All right, verses 18 through 20. If you like that, you're going to really like this. So we're going to start again with what it's not saying, okay? Because these are also some difficult verses. What is this not saying? I'll read it again just so we're all caught up. Servants, some of your, this is where it's even, the NASB I think does a good job here. I think servants is the right word. Some of your translations will say slaves. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. I mean, there are people right now ready to fight over that one, right? That's, that's a tough verse. I'm going to say, I'll say it with you. That's a tough verse for me too. I'm not just putting all that on you. And honestly, uh, verse 13 is tough for me. It has been tough for me in the past and sometimes still is. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There are some human institutions and there are some leaders, uh, man, I don't want to submit to them. <laughs> Nothing in me wants to. Um, how then do I? Put a pin in that question. Peter answers it. We'll get there in a second. Okay, but what is this not saying? Neither here or anywhere else in the Bible, it, neither here or anywhere else, is the Bible condoning, owning, and abusing other human beings? Absolutely not. The NASB here uses the word servants instead of slaves, which I believe is helpful because much of what is being addressed here is poor people in this time who essentially sold themselves into indentured servanthood, and it was not what we would commonly think of as slavery. When we think slavery, typically we think of the, the very dark spot in American history where people were going to other countries, stealing people, bringing them back, and forcing them to work. That did happen some in Bible times. Uh, that is also part of what's being addressed here, but the reality is a very large percentage of ancient culture in this time, you got to think about like where we're at in history. It, it was this weird time where like cities are becoming more um, populated, and it's like we're, we're kind of coming out of very agricultural societies into more of, kind, you know, there's, it's more... Uh, it's more modern, I didn't want to use that word, but it's more modern than it has been. And so you've got some people stuck in the middle a little bit, right? Like some people have made it in this new modern-ish era. Uh, you still got people farming, but like what's everyone else doing, right? And so you had a lot of people with, struggling with abject poverty. There's more people moving out of desperate areas, coming to these cultural centers like Rome. And you can see that in cities today. You end up with a bunch of people that flock to a place thinking that that's where the dream's at. And then you just have a bunch of poor people in one place. And so that's a lot of what was going on here. A huge percentage of the people that Peter and Paul and James would have been pastoring would have been people in these servant 
type roles. Poor people that had sold them and sometimes their whole family into indentured servanthood. Okay? There's that. I'm going to give you a few more pieces. I've done this before. I'm not going to go as exhaustive because of everything we're covering today. Uh, I've treated, I think, in a more exhaustive way this idea that the Bible doesn't condone slavery. I, I can't remember where, but and I can talk to you in more depth if you're interested in that or you're not sure, but I'll just give you a few things. First of all, Exodus 21:16. This is an Old Testament command from God regarding uh, what should happen to somebody if they do something. Here's what he says. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, the guy who did the kidnapping shall surely be put to death. Does that sound like a condoning of the slavery we think about that happened in this country earlier on? It sounds like the exact opposite. It sounds like, actually, according to God, everybody that did the atrocious things they did uh, in pulling people over here uh, to work agriculturally in America in our early history, every person that did that, according to God, if we were still under Old Testament rules, would have been put to death. That's how God feels about it. He doesn't like it at all, okay? Uh, I would just call to your attention the whole book of Philemon, okay? Paul is writing a letter. He's saying, essentially to this this guy that was a a wealthy slave owner, look, this guy has escaped slavery, and I'm sending him to you. And here's what I expect you to do. Paul, as the leader, as the apostle, is putting his apostolic authority into this letter, saying, when this guy who is an escaped slave comes to you, he's a part of the brotherhood now. I expect you to treat him as such. The whole point of the letter. There's a whole book of the Bible. That's the point of it. That's exhibit two I'm giving you that the Bible does not condone slavery, especially in the way that we think of it. Uh, also, Paul's instruction, so the same as Paul's instruction to those who were slaves. When Paul, when Paul was talking to slaves, one thing he said to them, he gives some very similar instructions to Peter here in a couple places. One thing he says is, if you came to Christ and you're a free man, don't then become a slave. And he says, don't worry about, if, if you come to Christ as a, as a slave or an indentured servant, don't feel like you have to instantly change that station in order to follow Jesus. That's his, that's his command. But if you think about what that means is, he's saying to somebody, if you become a follower of Christ, here's what I don't want you to do anymore. Even if you're a free man and you're poor and you're struggling, the answer is not to go sell yourself into slavery. I know that's what some people do, and I, but that's not what you're going to do. The household of faith is going to come around you, and we're going to help you, and we're going to make sure that you don't have to do that. If you're a free man when you come to Christ, stay free. If we were talking about the kind of slavery we oftentimes think about, this forced, very evil institution, somebody wouldn't have a choice to put themselves in that. You understand what I'm saying? That's why I'm bringing this up. Peter and Paul both had to give pastoral instruction to the huge amount of people who lived in this way in their time. A whole bunch of people that were coming to Jesus were indentured servants. They sold themselves in order to eat. They became a household slave. Uh, This specifically what Peter's talking about here, he's saying um, not only those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, that's also, that kind of sticks in my craw a little bit, like, man, that's tough. Because even if someone is an indentured servant, like, you're saying they, they need to, they need to submit themselves to that and be patient in the midst of, of somebody treating them uh, harshly. That, that's hard to swallow, and, and I, I admit that. However, uh, 
if we think about it correctly and if we follow Peter's line of logic, it, it, what he's saying makes sense. Uh, and, and part of it might be a lot of scholars believe this harsh treatment being talked about here was, was the result of the fact that most of these slave owners probably had a God. And if that God wasn't Jesus, let me say it again. If these guys were still slave owners, they probably had a God, and if they were slave owners, that God probably wasn't Jesus, because if their God was Jesus, they probably wouldn't be slave owners anymore. You tracking with me? So they probably had a God, and a lot of this harsh treatment these slaves were being subjected to may have had to do with the fact that if they came to Christ, they would have been expected, if they were part of this, this household where they were, had sold themselves to this person, they would have been expected to worship their God, worship their deity, their idol, whatever it is. And so as they refused to do that, they probably received harsh treatment. That's part of what Peter's saying. And if you're treated harshly for the fact that you're not going to worship some idol, um, bearing up under that patiently, um, trusting Jesus in the midst of that, that essentially being persecuted for the faith uh, and we see that theme throughout the scriptures. That shouldn't be surprising to us. It's being applied here specifically to the plight of the person who is in servanthood uh, in this form of slavery, okay? You, you could come out and ask, and people have. It's a fair question. Why didn't Peter hear Paul when he talks about it? Why didn't they just outright condemn slavery? Are, have you, are you thinking that? Have you thought that even now as I'm talking? If you're still engaged, you probably have. Wouldn't it have just been easier for him here to say, instead of telling servants to be submissive to masters, even if they're harsh, he could have just said, stop slavery. <laughs> it's bad, and Jesus doesn't like it. Like, he could have just went that route. Why didn't he do that? Both Peter and Paul, they didn't see the most effective strategy to end slavery as revolting against the practice. You have to think about the fact that this, this would have put them in the category of the extremists we talked about earlier because the whole culture and the whole system was built around this structure of this type of slavery. And so if, if, they, would have, if they would have made their singular issue to stand up and start fighting against that, what would have happened is slavery wouldn't have stopped. They would have just got crushed because nobody, nobody else thought it was bad. It was only... It was only followers of Jesus, which was a small portion of people at this time, that thought it was an issue. And so if they would have tried to rise up and, and march and whatever and try to stop it right there in that moment, if they would have started trying to just address it head on, it would have been seen as a revolt. It would have been crushed. So a revolt that wasn't the most effective strategy to end the practice of slavery. What they believed would be the most effective approach was both slaves and slave owners meeting Jesus and believing the gospel. So that's the way, route they went with. That's why, he's, that's why Peter's pastoring people and loving people and instructing people that are in the midst of this trade and in the midst of this kind of work, right? That's why he's speaking to them about how to, how to work out their salvation in the midst of their situation. Uh, their thought was, ultimately the gospel will end... Uh, institutionalized slavery. I think they believe that. We, we're not going to go at it head on in this culture and win. So the way we go at it is continuing to get as many people the gospel as possible because the more slaves and slave owners that believe the gospel, the less, less, and less this stuff is going to happen. Now, for us, dear friends, I think that's very instructive. We need to think very seriously about how we approach a lot of things because a lot of times the church 
doesn't heed that wisdom. We're not able to gauge the temperature of our culture. And a lot of times, we should try to go head on and go to battle with these cultural issues. And we make that our single issue. And we like to gel around causes and get real excited and rant and chant and make a sign. But you know what? Oftentimes it's not effective. We get shouted back down and it doesn't work. When all the energy and time that was spent doing that should have been spent on the mission Jesus originally gave us anyway, which is to get the gospel to as many people as possible. Because every social justice issue we're mad about, the gospel answers. And every social justice issue that is, the ca- that is caused by people being evil to each other, not preferring one another above themselves, not really loving each other, if they, if they met Jesus, that would change. So the church should stay in her lane to some degree. I'm not saying we don't engage in any social issues. Don't misunderstand me. We absolutely have to. We need to speak to these things, but we have to speak in gospel terms. And we need to understand our main mission is not to get involved in a bunch of auxiliary stuff. We've been given a mission. We have a leader. His name is Jesus. And he said, I want you to love God, and I want you to love people, and I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. If we do that we have a greater possibility of bringing comfort, hope, and change into every issue that we're concerned about. All the things that make our hearts ache about our world today, every issue that grabs our hearts, all of these justice issues, we should care about them. If you don't care about them, I'm I'm concerned that you maybe aren't a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying don't care about them. I'm saying how do you fix it? How does a Christian go at it? Well, Peter and Paul thought the way to go at it was to preach the gospel hard. Keep pushing the gospel. Don't get pulled off into this one-track thing that ends up reducing your ability to minister to all these other people. Stay with what Jesus gave us because it has the greatest potential for real change. Because even if you you win little minor victories and you achieve behavior modification and get some people to stop doing some stuff— If it's not the gospel that caused that change, they'll just shift to some other destructive behavior that then we'll be sad about. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is true. We will find some way to be degenerate (laughs) as humans. We need the gospel to change us. That's the only thing that's going to bring our vision to a place of looking to love and restore and help one another rather than tear each other down. Lord, whatever part of that (laughs) wasn't clear, please help it be clear because it's so important. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Uh, if, if we don't believe the gospel has the power to change every single thing that we're concerned about, if we don't believe that, and if we don't live and act like that's true, the world's never going to believe it, friend. And here's, here's my contention. Here's, and he, if you're picking up in the tone of my voice a little bit of frustration, it's in there. Because here's, here's the truth. I don't think... I don't know if half the church, 50% of those that claim to be a part of the church of God really believe what I'm saying right here. And so that puts us in a real tough spot. I don't know how many of us really believe the gospel is the answer to everything that ails us. Because we sure don't act like it. Where our energies get focused, where our resources get poured, man, doesn't reflect a belief in that truth right there. And if we, if we the people of God, don't believe that basic premise... Why would the world ever buy it? There you go. Hallelujah. You might be thinking to yourself, ah, this guy's just trying to make the Bible look better. I don't believe anyone would ever sell themselves into slavery. I don't care how poor they were. No one would do that. No human would submit themselves to that kind of 
terrible treatment. You're right. You're right. Who would? Who would let someone tell them where to go and what to do and when to do it and what to wear just for money or the things they need to survive? Who would do that? Every single one of you that has a job. They tell you where to go, when to go, what to do, how to do it, and what to wear while you're doing it most of the time. So what I want you to see here is you can get really, you can get really sidetracked here on this idea that Peter's speaking to people that were in indentured servanthood or, or even slavery in his time as he's given these instructions, which you don't understand. And we could get all mixed up on that and realize the application for, for us is deep here. Every one of you that's an employee, everything he says here applies. Employees, be submissive to your bosses with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, I realize most of you are going to have to stretch in faith with your imagination to imagine an unreasonable boss, but for those are out there. They exist. And so some people have to bear up under that. No, most of you have experienced it. If you've had a job for any amount of time, and so instead of uh, kind of letting this be some abstract idea, I want, I want 18 and then the rest of this to, for you to understand that you're not that unlike a first century indentured servant because you let someone tell you a whole lot of what you're going to do so that you can have the basic things you need to live. Unless you're independently wealthy and whatever and an entrepreneur, praise God, that's great. Uh, if you're married, you still have a boss. So <laughs> hallelujah, right? Um, Ultimately, everybody, I don't care how high you get up the ladder, anybody that seeks to have no authority over them whatsoever uh, also is a fool. So it doesn't matter how successful you are in business or whatever, there's somebody that you should be submissive to, there's somebody that you should have respect for, there's somebody that you should do those things when they do a great job being nice and also when they're unreasonable. Because, why? Why would we do that? That sounds crazy, because this finds favor with God. Verse 19, uh, if for the sake of conscience conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when, when suffering unjustly. So the whole point here is even if, if you're suffering unjustly and you're willing to, to, to trust God in the midst of that, that finds favor with God. He's going he's gonna to give you more ammo for that in just a second. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. My, my whole thought on verse 20 is how far away we are from this, most of us. Because he says, like <laughs> Peter's trying to think of a, like a comparison here. He says, what credit is it, is it to you if you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? Then he, goes, then he sets the high bar, says, but when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure. This finds favor with God. Most of us are a step behind even like his first example, which is, you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. Most of us, when we sin and then receive harsh treatment, we don't even endure that with patience. Most of us are crying about that. Most of us are like, well, don't judge me. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, don't, we aren't even at the point of realizing we, we, half of us can't patiently endure harsh treatment when our own sin is the reason why it's happening. We're crying and justifying and making excuses all across the board on that one. We're not. <laughs> but Peter wasn't done. He was saying, like, that, when, when you get to that point where you can patiently endure harsh treatment, when you're the cause, 
He's like, what, what credit is that? that? That's just what you should do. And we're behind even that one. Then he says, but when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and endure it, this finds favor with God. Yup. If these verses don't push you to the feet of Jesus asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, then, then you're asleep or unaware or something's wrong with you because that's tough, man. That's a tough verse to, to know that what I'm doing is right, but I'm suffering for that and patiently enduring that and knowing that God sees. That's rough. That is difficult. I, there's no way I will do that without the help of God. I will lash out. I will fight back. I will argue my point. I will try to prove them wrong. And I'm just assuming all the things I'm confessing right now apply to some of you, right? That's so hard. It's so hard to think about employees or servants submitting to difficult bosses. It's so hard to think about submitting to governmental authorities even when they're hypocrites half the time. It's so hard to think about I'm being told here, even when I'm doing right when someone does wrong to me, as a result of it, that I'm supposed to patiently endure it. How can I do those things? How, those are hard. He's got an answer for you. Let me read it to you. Here's the answer to how we do that. You've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Can you entrust yourself to him who judges righteously? Can you trust that when it's difficult to submit to leaders of various kinds, whether they're good leaders or bad leaders, when you're being reviled or treated harshly, even when it's you doing something right. Can you trust the one who judges righteously? Can you step like footprints in the snow, a, 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 a little brother following a big brother who's already stepped? Can you step into those footprints the way your master did, your king, your savior, when he was reviled that he did not revile in return? When he was tortured, he didn't fight back that he spent one of his last precious breaths asking the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friend, can you let your angst towards those that would persecute you be turned into compassion? Can you have the eyes to see the way your master did? He looked at his persecutors, and what did he feel? Was it anger? Was it hate? Was it vengeance? It was compassion. Friend, if somebody's treating you harshly, they're broken. If somebody's coming after you because you're doing right, it's because something's wrong in them. They don't have what you have. They don't know the truth. Can your angst and anger and your desire to push back and fight and to seek vengeance, can all of that be transformed by the power of the Spirit in your life and heart to be turned into compassion? Can you, can you care for the soul of those that treat you harshly, that are unfair in the way they deal with you? That's what we're called to. I can't do it. I know. I know you can't, but he can do it through you. The Lord Jesus will help you. Will you ask for his help? Will you humble yourself? Will you receive his help? These are the questions, friends. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 
a lot of argument about whether this means spiritual healing or physical healing. The context, he says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. It seems that very much here what's being talked about is the fact that we no longer have to live with our feet entangled in, in the sins and the struggles that used to keep us drugged down into slavery, but we've been set free. This seems to be speaking of spiritual healing. I think the Bible does elsewhere talk about the fact that God is absolutely well able to heal us physically. Uh, ultimately, that's not the point. The point is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why he bore our sins on the cross, friends. You can. You can submit to these difficult commands at the second half of 1 Peter 2. Uh, but you're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit given to you because of the finished work of Christ. You aren't going to do it on your own. It will help us to remember in these difficult times that we were, we were continually straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Dear friends, we were broken and lost. We were, we were just in just as much trouble as every single person you're going to encounter that gives you an opportunity to obey or disobey these verses. Every single person that because of their brokenness takes advantage of other people and tries to hurt other people and tries to step on other people to get up uh, whatever ladder they think they're climbing, all, all of their brokenness, we had it. We, we too were like sheep that had gone astray. We had no shepherd. But now we do. And because of that, dear friend, we should be able to cling to that beautiful truth. Out of gratitude for that beautiful truth, our angst and our vengeance and our anger and our hatred towards those that would oppress us should turn to compassion and love and care. And all of that, all of that is supported by trust in him who judges righteously. Because God is God, we can live like this. Will it be easy? No. Is it possible through Jesus? Yes. May we be a people who honor and submit to the authorities God establishes, even when it is difficult. May we be a people who endure harsh treatment with patience, knowing that like Israel and Egypt, God sees us and will bring justice. And may we do all these things by following in the steps of our Savior, who was the most righteous, yet suffered the most, who took all of God's wrath, but deserved none of it, for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you. Lord, as difficult as these verses are, we thank you for them. Lord, I thank you for every single belief, idea, attitude, opinion that was challenged today by the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for stretching us. Thank you, Lord, for presenting us uh, with commands that are too difficult for us to accomplish on our own. Thank you, Lord, that you continually set the bar at a place that we'll never accomplish it without your help. Thank you that you don't let us in pride think that we're going to rise up to some level of righteousness without you. Lord, as we read these verses, as we see your command to submit to governing authorities, even though they're, they're man-made and they're full of hypocrisy half the time, the fact that you've called us to submit for your sake, for the sake of your gospel, for the sake of the mission, for the sake of reflecting your glorious light to the world... Lord, that's a hard call. That's difficult for us. We don't want to do it half the time. But Lord, we're praying. We, we see the command. We see the importance. And we ask for your help to do it. 
when it comes to those of us that are, we bear up under the pressure of difficult authority figures, bosses, and place people in our places of work, people that are out to get us, people that it seems like they're just intentionally gunning for us, Lord, all these difficult situations, people that are underqualified to even be in that position, and we know it. Lord, help us. Help us not to sit on that mental merry-go-round and just stew on that stuff, Lord. Help us to see them with your eyes. Help us to see their brokenness. Help us to see the reasons why they do what they do. Help us to see that they're desperately clawing for some semblance of success because they're so broken and they have no identity other than trying to climb some ladder. And when that thing breaks from underneath them, they're going to be shattered and broken, Lord. May we care for their soul. May we, may we cry out to you for them, regardless of whether or not that means any, any easy for us in our situation. God, may we genuinely care just that they would come to know you, that they would be set free from those things that drive them to those, uh, those terrible and, 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 and painful and harmful activities that they do against us. Lord, may our motivation for all of this, may the power we draw upon to be able to do these things, may it be that we, we walk in your footsteps, Lord Jesus. We know that you did this to a greater degree than we ever could. We could suffer for doing right. You suffered the most for doing right. You were the most righteous, holy, and perfect, and yet you suffered the most in our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, not only for giving us the example to follow, but for promising us the power of your Spirit. We will not obey these things without your help. We will fail. And so we humbly say that, and we humbly request your help. We need you, God. We thank you for hearing us. We thank you for answering. We love you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.